Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. One by one, we're liberating our American towns. Can you believe that I'm saying that? I'm talking about liberating our towns. It's like I'd see in a movie. They're liberating the town. I never thought I'd be standing up here talking about liberating the towns on Long Island. But we're getting them out. They're going to jails, and then they're going back to their country. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that what that says is people no longer are seeing the United States as a refuge for them. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says there is no White House chaos. It's just mooch ado about nothing. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I want to start today's show with a reading recommendation. It's the new story in Vanity Fair by Michael Lewis. That alone should be enough to get you to read it. But this one gets to the heart of the Trump administration's total negligence and total ignorance about some of the most important and basic functions of the United States government. These include preventing catastrophic nuclear accidents, tracking down stray plutonium that could fall into the hands of terrorists, and managing a Cold War's worth of nuclear waste. Before the election, the Department of Energy prepared for the transition to a new administration, just as officials did at every federal agency. It prepared thick briefing books about key issues and set aside dozens of desks for the newcomers. And then it waited for the Trump people to show up. And waited and waited. Trump's incoming secretary, Rick Perry, a guy who had run for president on a platform of getting rid of the whole Department of Energy, finally spent a few minutes with the outgoing secretary, Ernest Moniz. The only thing the Trump people seemed interested in at all was getting the names of civil servants who might think climate change wasn't a hoax so that they could purge them. In the rest of the article, Lewis essentially delivers an unclassified version of the transition briefing that Trump's people never bothered to hear. The Department of Energy is an incredibly complex $30 billion agency with 110,000 employees. It drives much of the basic science research done in the United States. It protects the electrical grid from attack. It tries to mitigate catastrophic risks that we aren't thinking about because we can't even imagine them. When you read this article, two things become abundantly clear. First, the competent management of the Energy Department is crucial to our physical survival. And second, that the president and his people don't know, don't want to know, and don't care. On today's show, Donald Trump is making a big noise about Central American gangs and deporting undocumented immigrants. But what's he actually doing? I'll speak to a journalist who covers immigration closely, Julia Preston of The Marshall Project, right after this message. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio today by Julia Preston. She's a contributing writer at The Marshall Project, and before that was for many years a journalist at The New York Times covering international affairs and Latin America in particular. She was based in Mexico and Brazil, and she was the national immigration correspondent for The New York Times. Julia, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Julia, your new story in The Washington Post, produced in, in uh, coordination with The Marshall Project, is about asylum seekers being tried in absentia. I was surprised by that. I didn't even even know that was a thing. Well, this is happening because uh, you have a surge in 2014. It began in 2014 of Central American families. So in this particular case, we're talking about parents with children uh, who came across the southwest border in very large numbers. And by a series of policy decisions, they were released by the Obama administration and sent out to immigration courts around the country to pursue asylum claims. And it has gone very badly for them. And in 70% of those cases now are ending with removal orders, what a deportation order issued by uh, an immigration judge to an empty courtroom because the immigrants are not there. And basically, it's just a situation where they don't know what they have to do or they can't find a lawyer to tell them what to do. It's a general failure of the whole system with respect to these Central American families. And so how much does the the brokenness of this particular part of the immigration system reflect Trump's policies versus how much of it was pre-existing under Obama? The immigration courts uh, have been in an enormous crisis for a number of years. Uh, and so this is, this is, goes back quite a ways. But the way that the Obama administration decided to treat these families compounded the problems in the immigration courts quite significantly because at one point their cases were all sort of rushed to the front of the docket. So they were taken into the system and started this march towards their ultimate hearings where they would, where a judge would determine whether their claims that they were facing life-threatening or very dangerous risks if they went back home, those claims would be evaluated. Because the courts are so overwhelmed, those cases themselves ended up getting prolonged, lost, just swamped in this court system that's really not working very well. And uh, so the problems really predate uh, the Trump administration. But the issue now is that you have a big majority of these families who now have been given deportation orders by an immigration judge. And so that's the equivalent of an arrest warrant. And among other things, their cases include recent addresses. So they could be vulnerable to deportation under the Trump administration's particular uh, formula for who they're going to deport. Is that why they're not showing up in court to contest their cases? Because they're afraid that if they lose or if they make an appearance, they'll they'll be essentially taken into custody and deported right away? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think we have to acknowledge that some portion of these cases are migrants that probably shouldn't have been in the asylum process in the first place. There are people who had more tr- traditional 
aspirations to have a better life or education for their kids. So some of those cases are failing because they wouldn't succeed anyway. But in many cases, uh, these are families that who already passed a first stage of an asylum assessment. So when they were at the border, they were asked by an immigration officer about their fears, and the the officer made a preliminary determination if that expression of fear was credible. And most of these families have passed that test. But the problem is now they've been sent out to immigration courts around the country. They very hard for them to get lawyers. And the court doesn't appoint a lawyer for you in this kind of, it's no, not like a cr- is, criminal case. Right, that's exactly right. So mm-hmm. in immigration court, even a small child, but especially an adult, no one has a right to paid counsel. That is to say, no one has a right in immigration court to counsel appointed by the government. And so they have to find representation on their own. And in some courts, you know, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, there are plenty of attorneys around who are willing to do the work. But you you go to Atlanta, you go to Charlotte, which is the court where I went, it's very hard to find an attorney who doesn't have to charge for for a case. And in in places like Charlotte, where the judges have not been friendly to the claims that these families are making, it's just very hard for them to win a case. So Donald Trump is obsessed with these Central American criminal gangs. I mean, he was talking Friday in this Long Island appearance about MS-13, which is, I guess, a Salvadoran-based international gang, and describing in these horrible, violent, sounding very hyperbolic terms how awful they are, and they kill young girls and torture them for sport before they kill them. I mean, these people are the victims of whatever the reality of that is. There are legitimate asylum seekers who are fleeing those same gangs in Central America. Does the Trump administration, does Trump draw any distinction between asylum seekers and other undocumented immigrants? Well, I think there's probably no one in this country who would argue that we shouldn't be vigorously hunting down and prosecuting and bringing to justice the Mara Salvatrucha, which is the sort of overall name of this particular Salvadoran gang. I think uh, we should remember that this gang originated in the 1980s in Los Angeles. Mm. So this is a gang that started in Los Angeles and its members were massively deported in that period of time. They went back to El Salvador and uh, because of the weakness of the institutions in El Salvador, they have, particularly in recent years, expanded very dramatically. So this is, there are places in El Salvador where MS-13 or MS-18 or these gangs related to the Mara Salvatrucha are actually contesting government control at the same time that these there are gangs in places like Long Island uh, associated with this organization that have been there for generations. It's not a new phenomenon. What's happening now is that you have uh, particularly the young people who have come in recent years, a lot of them have not had support They've come without their family members in many cases, so they're kind of out there, and they're vulnerable to to recruitment. So that is something that has been happening. And But on the other hand, the victims of this gang, in many cases, are other immigrants, and even other immigrants from Central America, which is a distinction 
that President Trump did not make on Friday. Yeah, I don't think he made any mention of that in in his speech or in other speeches. I mean, I think he leaves the clear implication that illegal, undocumented immigrants are victimizing native-born Americans. He doesn't say that, but he certainly doesn't point out that these are immigrant communities and that most of the victims are in the same immigrant community. Yes, that's exactly right. And this is a real dilemma for the police who are trying to uh, combat these gangs because you really... Uh, it's very difficult to to do that unless you can get some kind of cooperation from the people in the community. So uh, many times you'll find now a conflict between the local police and even some people within Immigration and Customs Enforcement who are trying to work with informants and do classic police work to try and confront these gangs. And, you know, and the, the Trump administration and its policies, which are not making the distinction between the community and the predator and therefore making it much more likely that the community will not trust the police when they try and gain information about what the gang is doing. The Trump administration's other fixation and Jeff Sessions' fixation is around the sanctuary cities. What effect does any of that actually have that some large cities have declared themselves in that way protected spaces for undocumented immigrants or or anti-deportation? I think the first thing is that the word sanctuary has become sort of a common phrase, but it's actually, in most cases, a major misnomer. Hmm. Uh, What many cities around the country have uh, tried to do is to limit the cooperation with immigration authorities so that the immigration authorities and the police are working together to deport, arrest and deport people who've committed crimes. So the whole notion of the sanctuary city was in a certain way an effort to focus everyone's effort on identifying the people that really are serious threats and committing crimes and to not associate the police with immigration enforcement when the police have to confront the community in general. Mm. And so in most places that have now been identified as sanctuary cities by the Trump administration, the actual limitations on ICE are are not great. They're, they, they, uh, it has to do with uh, whether or not the cities will hold a person they have in their custody for extra time so that ICE can come and pick that person up. And a lot of cities have said, well, we're not going to do that. This is not just you know, kind of liberal strongholds by any means. There are police departments in, you know, Dallas, Houston. They're just, they want to be careful about when they associate with with immigration authorities because they need to have a relationship with the local community. Julia, immigration enforcement is a central issue for Jeff Sessions. He's been in the front on the issue of challenging sanctuary cities and bringing, I think, more immigration judges to the border. What's what's his role in this? Well, a peculiarity of our immigration courts is that they are not part of the judiciary. They're actually part of the Justice Department. So Attorney General Sessions is in charge of the immigration courts. And he has, I think he's aware of the severe crisis that those courts are in. And he, interestingly, has been uh, moving to a- approve and place many judges who were actually appointed by Attorney General Lynch. At the same time as the in the Justice Department per se, he has really encouraged federal prosecutors to be undertaking 
immigration prosecution. So he's has identified a prosecutor in every district across the whole country to start bringing uh, immigration cases. That would be people who returned after they were deported. There are a number of federal uh, crimes that are associated with immigration. So the, he and, and particularly in the in the case of the gangs, uh, the Justice Department obviously has a very important role to play in the event that the Trump administration decides to prosecute these folks in the U.S. in the federal system rather than just deport them. So that's a little unclear as to whether they're going to do that or not. How has policy on deportations actually changed since Trump became president? I mean, it's been it's been more than than in half a year now, and you hear all kinds of things. I mean, you hear that they've stepped up deportations, but maybe not that much. You you know, there, there are different there there you get different hints about what's actually going on what what is their policy and what is what's different the big difference is that the trump administration is ready to deport anyone who doesn't have legal status in the united states the obama administration especially in the last 2 years made increasingly focused efforts to target criminal Immigrants, immigrants who had been convicted of crimes. And there was plenty of work to do on that front. And, and the Trump administration has just uh, wiped away all of the documentation, all of the instructions and guidance that steered immigration agents towards criminals who had con- uh, convicted of crimes. And now the Trump administration has said, if an immigration officer thinks you might have committed a crime, or you might be a risk to public safety, that person can be deported. But in addition, if anyone who is detained in the course of an ICE operation, what they call a collateral, those people are now being deported as well. And so there's no criteria anymore to prevent uh, immigration and customs enforcement from deporting For example, this recent case that we had, a guy in Ohio who was the father of four United States citizen children, no criminal record, you know, he was just out of status and he hadn't gotten, he had not been successful in the court and the man was deported. That guy never would have been deported under the Obama administration. Very unlikely. The other thing that's happening is that that uh, there are lots of people in the country who have been under what's called an order of supervision. So these are people who walked right up to the door of deportation and then the authorities said okay you know this is not a bad guy uh, this is just an immigration problem and so we'll allow this person to come in every 6 months report to ICE and as long as they don't commit an, any offense and you know stay preserve the safety of the community we'll let them stay and all of those people now, when they're coming in to report to ICE, now they're being detained and deported. Right. So in a way, the Obama administration policy was, we obviously have limited resources. We can't do everything. Let's focus on the worst criminals and be aggressive about deporting them. The Trump policy, in a funny way, is don't just focus on the worst criminals because we're not willing to acknowledge that we can't deport everybody even though the moment we're not really trying to deport everybody, we're just leaving a lot of ambiguity about who will deport and who we won't. Yeah, so it, this has had a major impact in terms of spreading fear and concern and and distress in immigrant communities. But in practical terms, in real terms, uh, the numbers of people who've been arrested for deportation have gone up 
considerably, but the big increases in people precisely who don't have criminal records. Yeah. You, you've reported on, on both sides of the border, Julia. I mean, what's the, what's the mood like among communities that are, that flow back and forth? That is migrants who, who move back and forth across the border to Mexico and other Central American countries. Is there greater fear about coming? Is there, are people, uh, avoiding the authorities. I mean, what's what's life like for an undocumented immigrant now? Well, part of the problem with this whole picture is that the scenario that you just painted of people moving back and across the border, that doesn't happen anymore. And that's a big part of the problem. People can't leave because they can't get back in. And so we've and this is a problem that's existed for many years. The more you enforce the border, the more you bottle up the people who are out of status inside the United States because they can't leave. Even though so much of it is historically seasonal labor, agricultural labor that would go back and forth multiple times a year. Yes, yes. Uh, But I think there is a general sense in Mexico that it's just much harder, much more dangerous, much more expensive to cross the border uh, than it used to be. So that, and now with President Trump, that just caps it off for a lot of people. It's just not worth the risk for a lot of people in Mexico. The Central Americans are in a different situation because this is a very dangerous, these gangs are really brutal. They're, they are trapped and their home community is suddenly taken over by a gang. If they go across the street into the territory of another gang, they can be murdered. It's, it's a very dangerous situation. And so that's part of the problem. And an interesting thing to think about is the origin of this whole problem is that was this mass deportation of these gang members to El Salvador in the 1980s when the country was in, the institutions hmm. were so weak that the justice system in El Salvador could not absorb them. And now we're talking about doing the same thing again. So one has to wonder if that's good policy. I've been speaking to Julia Preston of the Marshall Project. Uh, Read her new story in the Washington Post about asylum seekers being deported after being tried in absentia. Julia, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. But I have a special announcement. Trumpcast is going to be doing a live show in Austin, Texas, as part of the Texas Tribune Festival, which is a great politics and culture festival that happens every year. Our performance is on Saturday, September 23rd, and it's at the Texas Union Theater. I'll be there with Jamel Bowie, Virginia Heffernan, and some special guests. Tickets are $25, but you can get a 30% discount if you are a Slate Plus member. You can also get $50 off registration for the whole festival. Just use the promo code SLATE. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.